Welcome to the Action for Happiness podcast. As always, I'm your host, Guy. Action for Happiness is a movement of people committed to building a happier and more caring society. Visit the website actionforhappiness.org for more details and to access the latest podcasts and videos. On today's episode, I turn the mic around on fellow podcaster and mindfulness teacher, Ted Meisner. Ted hosts one of the most influential podcasts on mindfulness called Present Moment Mindfulness. And for me, it's my go-to podcast series. Ted has over 100 podcast conversations with experts, practitioners, and influencers in the mindfulness space. And we talk about the common themes and learning lessons he's had after interviewing so many amazing people. And we dig into topics such as, is mindfulness for everyone? I have always been a skeptic, not a denier, but a skeptic, which is show me how you know this to be so, whatever it is. Mindfulness, and, and I say this quite frequently, it's it's not magic, it's not a cure-all. And it is occasionally inappropriate for some people to engage in a mindfulness program. I'd say one suggestion that I, I give people in any kind of endeavor is do a little bit of research first. You know, find out what this is like. Uh, find out what it is that you're interested in about it. Don't forget to like and subscribe to get updates on the latest video and audio podcasts. Hi there, Guy. How are you? I'm very good, my friend. And you? Good. Very nice to see you. And you, this is what you look like. This is what I look like. It's pretty much like this. Yes. You know? and as long as I'm not holding a number in front of me, we're, we're good. Okay, perfect. I've, I've been listening to your podcast now for a, for a couple of years. And, you know, out of the, um, I think when you practice mindfulness, you're quite keen to find a community where you can share, share experiences, ask questions, because it is, it can get to a point where it's very very profound and you're experiencing new you're learning about yourself mm -hmm. and and you're struggling a lot and so i was i was seeking just you know i wanted to hear what other people were thinking and talking about it and i came across your podcast in a google search and i've been hooked ever since um what i like about it is that it's not just like the experts or it's you know it's very balanced you, you have you know people that are practitioners, people that are, you know, teachers, people that are going into the prisons. And so, you know, in the, um, in the, the, uh, the present moment fashion, I think my first question, you know, to, to pay tribute to your first question is to, you know, tell us a bit about your background, Ted, you know, we're the action for happiness. And, you know, our message is, you know, all about how do we help, you know, increase happiness and reduce suffering. And, and so when we heard, of, you know, when, you know, I suggested having you on the show. We really feel that this is a wonderful fit. So, if you, if you please, to just give us a bit, a bit about your background, how you know you got into mindfulness, and also how the the podcast came about. Well, thank you very much. And first, I I just want to express my gratitude to you for all of your work with Action for Happiness podcast. And it's it's quite quite an honor for me to be here. Uh, your your recent episode with uh, Rob Beamer about the movie yes, uh, and, and feeling a bit odd being in this, the august presence of you know, Mark Williamson, John Gabbett-Zinn, Daniel Goleman, Willem Kagan, other guests that you've had. Is really and Matthew Ricard to come this week as well, yeah. 
great. Thank you so much for this. So uh, my own journey started in, in the early 90s uh, and having difficulty with concentration and focus and just uh, having attention be where I want it to be. And so I, I took an introductory to mindfulness program on a weekend uh, at the local Zen center in Minneapolis at the time is where I lived. And, and it was the most difficult 10 minute sit I have ever done ever since, because it was the first time I'd actually taken a look inside and saw how very active the mind is this hamster wheel running very fast, uh, inside my head. And it was also a bit of a challenge because at, at the time, really the only place nearby to practice with a group uh, was in a particular context, in a, in a traditional context. And that was a wonderful place to be. Uh, and the more I practiced, the more it became very difficult to, uh, to turn away or avoid uh, who I was and the growing that I really needed to do. Uh, that's, that's part of the practice. You're looking closely and, and it's not always the pretty nice things that you want to see about yourself. So I continued with that uh, for many years and through a couple of different uh, mainline branches in, uh, in traditional Buddhism. And after some time found that I'm wondering if there are other people out there like me who are contemporary uh, science-minded Midwest Americans where uh, not all of the things that happen in a, a traditional context quite resonate with me. Uh, I'm I'm not from India of 2,600 years ago. And so many of the, the things that are a, a part of that are a little different uh, for me, much as I have a deep appreciation for them. Uh, still looking for a way to do this practice that's, uh, uh, that's right for me, that meets me where I am. And uh, so I started the, my first podcast, uh, which is still going, The Secular Buddhist. And that was about nine years ago. And that's gone along very well. And uh, my, my background's in biology, my educational background. And so I'm, I'm very fond of uh, evolutionary theory and principles. And the next evolutionary step I wanted to take was, what would this be? What would this exploration be uh, if it's just the practice? And and in a contemporary setting, and it, it wasn't dependent on an ideological structure, what would that be like? And, uh, and that was my first uh, running across of MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Took my first class through uh, University of Minnesota, actually had a program and, and took that, and this was like, like coming home. This is what I've been looking for and pursued teacher training and continued practice. Uh, and during that uh, several year uh, teacher training, uh, decided to start another podcast, which is Present Moment Mindfulness. And that was about uh, five years ago at this point. Uh, just this morning, I, I published episode 108 for that. And that's going strong as well. And again, both of these these podcasts is about exactly what you were saying. He is 
is contact with others and mm-hmm. finding those and and practicing together and seeing mm-hmm. what that might be like and learning from one another because I only have my own experiences, not yours or someone else's. And there's tremendous wisdom out there in the world and and stumbles too. And yeah. the the wonderful totality of everything that life has for us. So that's where we are today. So when I hear the word secular and Buddhism, the more I got into mindfulness, the word secular kept popping up. And so how different is your podcast that's called, you know, secular Buddhism, you know, to the present moment mindfulness? It's actually not all that different. In fact, many of the guests who have been on that are are also on present moment. So Mm -hmm. there's still an exploration of scientific research. There's still meditation teachers and authors who uh, don't teach in a a traditional Buddhist setting. The word secular can have a lot of baggage with Mm -hmm. it. And honestly, I did a lot of uh, wrestling with what's the right word here to describe uh, how I am, because it's not quite traditional. Mm -hmm. Uh, And still having an admiration and wanting to honor those contexts, also recognizing it's not mine. I landed on secular not as an opposition to uh, religious forms, because it's not at all, but rather a recognition of of this being about uh, this world, this life. The thing is that I I can know for sure, as best we can know anything for sure, is that I am here in this life. I know I have this one. Mm So what does the practice mean for me today? And that's really what the secular Buddhist has always been about. Yeah. Uh, and that's really what present moment is about. We just uh, focus more on the mindfulness communities and what we're seeing there through MBSR, MBCT, uh, and, and other just ways of practicing, doing a contemplative practice. Yeah. Whoever you are, however you are. Mm-hmm. Because the word can be quite tricky because when you, when I thought of Buddhism, which many people do, you know, they put their religious layer, the religious lens on it. Then when you throw in the word secular to a lot of people, that means non-religious, right? right? So when I was, when I first began talking about mindfulness and saying, oh, it's secular, you know, someone pointed, correctly pointed out to me that, you know, you don't want to give off the, the vibe that it's, you know, you can be religious, you can be Catholic, you can be, Absolutely. you know, Muslim, and still have the mindfulness. So it's, it's, that's really what I really loved about that. It's that this isn't tied into religion. You know, it's one of those human truths, right? Like Newtonian, the, the physics, it's not Christian. It's just, you know, it, it's just what it is. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's one of the, the most rewarding things for me as a mindfulness teacher is at the end of a program, someone who has a, a completely different uh, religious background for me will say, this brought me closer to my faith. And the reason that is so positively moving for me is it's what's closest to them, what is most meaningful to them in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, to me, is just an amazingly rewarding aspect of being a mindfulness teacher is my most recent class online had six different countries, a different dozen different states, and people from at least three or four different, completely different religious denominations. Yeah. And all found tremendous value out of it because this is what speaks to us as people. Honestly, that's been the, the interest for me in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Is it 
the what we do speaks to who we are, what we are, yeah. how we meet the world. That's the value to me. Yeah, and um, what I love about someone that's been in this world is I, I really try and draw from them the the common themes that have you know remained true. So you're saying you know you've passed the century of podcast episodes, right? We say 108 now, yeah. 108 for present moment, and the secular Buddhist is 289. We're approaching 300 for that one. Well, yeah. So you know, if you were to if you were to put a book together, a, a tell-all book about all your experiences, you know, what what has been you know the biggest learning lessons for you? along the way and you know what are those themes that do remain true and you know and that you can share with us well, that's a great question um, the biggest learning for me is it's very closely with uh, what i'm running into in my own practice which is uh, meeting people where they are that that's been and again an evolutionary change for me uh, it had been the original template I had in my head in, in meditation is there's someone up on the, the mountain seat, this person at the head of a class, they're in robes, and they give a lecture and you go practice. And instead finding that um, how we engage with uh, just basic attentional practices in meditation is across the board. And we don't have to have a particular striving for a goal. And that in fact, I found that difficult in my own practice. It, it became uh, much more helpful to me to, to ease my grip on that. Um, so the, I'd say the, the biggest learnings for me have been get out of my own way because I get in my way a lot. Uh, really deeply listening to others mm -hmm. and the the brilliance that they have to share even when I don't get it mm -hmm. when they first say something or share something it doesn't mean that it's not extremely insightful and give myself a little time to catch up with that yeah. because that that's that's very helpful in and of itself and and then the other part is uh, even someone who prefers solitude uh, and is a, a bit of an introvert despite having, <laughs> having podcasts, um, that practicing with others, that this human connection is amazingly supportive mm -hmm. uh, and a wonderful way to really, really be able to, to take a wide and deep look about life mm -hmm. and give me some new perspectives on how I'm meeting it. Because again, that self keeps getting in the way. <laughs> yeah. I have lots of enthusiasm about mindfulness and one, and I have a co-host that unfortunately couldn't be here today, but you know, he likes to play the, I call it, he, he's the scolder to my, to my molder, scully to my molder. <laughs> and, you know, he likes to repeat the phrase, don't let the, you know, the enthusiasm run ahead too much of the, of the science. And I hate doing that because it's, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm from the point of view where we should be screaming it from the top of the mountain hills, you know, like everyone must, but then again, I come across as patronizing and <clears throat> it's like someone 
talking about their religion or yoga and it's you know what what is your take on that you know just being so immersed in that world you know are you that don't let the enthusiasm run ahead of the science or you know what what's your stance on that it's a it's a really this is one of the things i'm i'm also wrestling with is uh appreciating complexity uh, because i don't i want simple answers yeah. that, that's my knee-jerk reaction to things i want i want the easy button and this is complex yeah uh, and what i've i've found is i i have always been a skeptic not a denier but a skeptic which is show me how you know this to be so whatever it is mm-hmm. and and so anytime uh, there's scientific research i'll go in and read the paper itself mm-hmm. because the headlines and we see this in particularly now because when i started there wasn't social uh, online social uh, networking wasn't a thing yet yeah um, there there's a lot of uh, inadvertently poor science journalism Mm-hmm. There's uh, a lot of with the best intentions science journalism that nonetheless creates a title, for example, mm-hmm. in a popular science article uh, that is completely wrong and doesn't even vaguely say what the authors say in the research. So uh, a healthy skepticism, I think, is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Read the paper itself, not just the title of the popular media article. Well, that's tough, though. We, do we have a lot of people don't oh, have yeah. the time, and it's small font. It is. It's very tough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's so. Two <clears throat> things I would offer for that. That's one reason um, I do the podcast is to allow researchers to have their own voice and mm-hmm. share what they mean in human terms. Yes, uh, because scientific papers are often uh, best read by other researchers mm-hmm. who who understand what what the languaging means. Um, I was very fortunate last year to be a co-author on a paper. Uh, lead author is Nicholas Van Dam. And the title is Mind of Hype. And it's, it's about 15 of us who are very concerned about yeah. uh, what we're seeing about overhyped promises about mindfulness, because we can see that as damaging. Mm. And so we talk about, you know, mindfulness can have many definitions. It's not always consistently applied. Uh, research is very young, despite going on for nearly 40 years. Uh, and and there's we feel, because we're all passionate about the practice, this is, is not taking it apart. This is hopefully making it strong mm-hmm. by suggesting that we up our game as researchers on active control groups, for example, and the instruments we use. And in particular, one, one of the things I was interested in is uh, what's shared in the media. And, and how is that itself uh, a very important tool in helping people understand who are not researchers about yeah. what we mean? Yeah. And of course, this, the paper itself is, a, is very popular and, and is a victim uh, to its own success and that it's misquoted quite a lot. Uh, and whenever I, I find that, I go in and, if possible, make a comment on whatever site it's it's yeah. uh, sending people in the wrong direction, or sometimes just reach out directly to the author and and uh, provide some more information about what it is we actually said versus what showed up. But it's it's a struggle and it's ongoing. You're listening to the Action for Happiness podcast. 
This episode, we speak with podcaster and mindfulness instructor, Ted Meisner, host of the Present Moment Mindfulness Podcast. There have been quite a few articles which highlight the, or claim to highlight the negative aspects of mindfulness. And, you know, I'm sure you've come across them as well. Do you, yes, do you recall any of those articles that you've agreed with? There are, in almost all of them, there is something that I agree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in fact, the author of the, the off-quoted Mick Mindfulness article, mm-hmm. uh, David Loy and Ron Purser co-authored that. David's a dear friend. Ron is a friend. Uh, I had them on The Secular Buddhist to talk about it. Um, and Ron has continued to publish papers. So often the, mind the hype, mm-hmm. uh, always be careful about these things. I agree with that completely mm-hmm. uh, because there are, in addition to having many very well-trained and competent teachers out there, there are also those who uh, may be great teachers uh, and, and may not be. And the lay public won't really be able to tell the difference while, while in a course that there's a reason why more experienced teachers might not phrase things a certain way that uh, someone without experience wouldn't. Yeah. So, so while you're saying it's not the that, mindfulness itself, it's the way in which it is taught, right? Presented, yeah. Presented. Because, for example, um, mindfulness, and, and I say this quite frequently, it's, it's not magic, it's not a cure-all. And it is occasionally inappropriate for some people to engage in a mindfulness program. Uh, there are reasons why uh, a good check for me about uh, the the level of interest in the well-being of participants is do you just register and you're in or or do you apply mm-hmm. and is there a review of how you are in every one of of my classes that I've been teaching I, I do a review and many of the people who apply don't get in because this wouldn't be the right time for them uh, and and that is also supported by the literature mm-hmm. So while there are some problems that occur, in these articles you're mentioning, they will often aggrandize uh, one or two cases Mm -hmm. that were not in the context of a secular mindfulness program. Uh, So there's a little bit of a a disingenuous lack of providing information that this occurred at a, you know, in a... a, Buddhist setting. This was not a secular mindfulness program. Yeah, uh, and there were there was not a a teacher who has received their credentials from an institution with, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of nuance to that, and they also um, will use a technique of guilt by association by saying military is bad, corporations are greedy, mm-hmm. and when we teach mindfulness in the military, it's therefore bad. Mm. And because corporations are greedy, corporate mindfulness programs are bad. Yeah, I've taught in the corporate world. I disagree with that yeah. uh, for many reasons. Mm-hmm. So uh, while there are some aspects I agree with, there are also many that I don't. And it's, again, for someone just reading it for the first time, yeah. there be an, oh, boy, I got to get away from this mindfulness thing. It's not for me. It's like, well, let's let's 
really take a closer look at what they said because it's I find those often to be a bit disingenuous. So if taught in the right way, is mindfulness for everybody? Even if taught in the right way, it's not for everybody. Can you give me some so, examples where it's not? Yeah, so for example, um, let's say uh, someone is in the middle of a major depressive episode. Mm -hmm. uh, they are uh, have thoughts of self-harm, perhaps taking their own life. Mm -hmm. They are not being treated. Have no professional counseling or therapy. Yeah, this would probably not be the right time for that person to take a program where they're taking a very close look at what the thoughts are, uh, without being able just neurologically to have a degree of uh, context with that. Not not distancing themselves, um, but also not getting overwhelmed by them. The, the overwhelm uh, proximity is just, it's too much then. And, and another, uh, another example would be someone who is very actively suffering from a severe uh, PTSD. And again, untreated. Um, there's a wonderful book that just came out by David Trelevin. Uh, and it's PTSD Sensitive Mindfulness, I think is the, the title um, for that, and it goes into why there are situations where this is just not well-timed. And once someone is in therapy, and perhaps in collaboration with their therapist and active monitoring, that might be a right time. So it's not so much that it's not for everyone, is mm -hmm. what is the right time for someone to take a mindfulness program? Because the their well-being is the most important thing, not taking the program yeah. or getting yeah. another participant. It's how are people doing? I mean, I think I mean, one thing that I think he's an alumni as well, Dr. Willem Kuchen out of the Oxford Mindfulness Center. We actually drove yeah. down there. We did a bit of filming. He's an awesome guy. Yeah. I think one of the things he mentioned was that in one of the researches they'd done about a group of um, suicidal candidates right for lack of a better term mm -hmm. and one of the outcomes of this was that although after the eight-week course quite a few were still depressive and you know still had negative thoughts the thought of suicide it never escalated to the to that final thought all right this is it I want to end it all now so although you know it didn't stop them from being negative thinking and having suicidal thoughts you know, versus the group that didn't have the training and the number of suicides for those that were non-treated. Right. And I, I just feel like, so let's say PTSD or you're suffering from a big depression. If someone were to explain to you throughout this eight-week course the nature of thoughts and say, hey, by the way, it's actually an evolutionary gift that this craziness is going on right. and you should treat it with kindness and say, you, your ancestors for thousands of generations have been able to survive because you've always been on the look. And if someone said to you, you know, there are some tools where you can actually change the relationship with it, why would that not be beneficial? Why about the negativity bias? Let them realize that the most of your thoughts about the past or the future and negative and just help them to come, to, even if they don't do a minute of meditation, just to come to a bit of realization that, hey, this is not on you. 
this is for everyone. We're all thinking all the time. The thoughts are majority are, are negative. There's a few things you can do to kind of change your relationship with that. If I'm suffering from PTSD and if I'm in a big having a big period where I'm in a big this big depression, would that not be rather than medication? Wouldn't that not be a, just a um, you know a, a, a very crucial part of the healing process? I think it is definitely a part of the healing process and so it's not an either or there's an and mm -hmm. here um, an intellectual understanding of something mm -hmm. uh, can actually be triggering for some people mm -hmm. depending on where they are uh, and again David's book has an excellent example of exactly the case you're talking yeah. about where Oh, but we'll share this information and that will will fix things and describes a scenario where an individual was suffering and and their therapist actually they uh, thought oh you know i've been taking this mindfulness program. here let me let's do a thing and we'll get you in close to your your feelings and your thoughts and that was actually quite harmful um, it, it sent the person into overwhelm and made things worse yeah. and this was through the best of intentions sharing what for others, as you've said, would mm -hmm. be very helpful information. Again, yeah. there's the complexity of this requires, I think it's responsible. We as teachers are responsible for doing our best to yeah. ensure now much as I'm very enthusiastic about this and I know that it can help, it has certainly helped me mm -hmm. in, in very significant circumstances. Um, there are also times I've needed to step back from it. Sure. Uh, and, and we also need to honor that as part of an ongoing pathway of engagement with, with what life holds. So, yeah. yeah, it would seem like, oh, with this, even just planting a seed, and one can certainly have a conversation about that, um, but practice itself can, can be difficult and mm -hmm. can send people into a can trigger right uh, so if folks. you're but what if you are then introduced to this at a young age where it becomes one of your life skills like daniel called daniel goldman calls it that trait so that you don't let it build up and build up so that when you're later on you're just so you know what i mean you're so not familiar with this you know you're just so intertwined with your thought patterns that when you go into it when something triggers it then you're just lost versus you know training yourself day after day for that for those 10 15 minutes where you're just training the, that muscle of attention where it's like no back to the back to the back to the breath back to the breath back to the regardless i don't care what the thought is right so that later on you're not this i don't know it's just like for me the way that i just see it in my mind is like perhaps like a build-up of you know you're not because you're not you're it's untrained you're living your life not not realizing that this thought pattern these thinking the number of thoughts are just continuous throughout the day, which are playing such a big, important role in your decision making and how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. That perhaps if you're at a younger age, when it becomes part of your education, a tool in the, that you have in your toolbox, that you know, then so that you know, and I think you know, William Kukin also called it a one billion person pro problem depression. Yep, it is something yeah, that's I, very I, pervasive we, in our culture today, right? Yeah, and I completely agree. I'm a very big advocate for uh, for having mindfulness taught at an early age. Mm -hmm. I think about the problems it would have uh, perhaps helped with in my own growing up, mm -hmm. and 
And as, as you're saying, he absolutely correctly that if one has a certain versatility uh, and experience with contemplative practice, yeah. when very difficult things come about, there's a little bit more uh, resiliency in dealing with them. Yeah. Uh, I was a meditator for, I think, about 15 years when uh, I got a, a cancer diagnosis. That oh, wow. My brother had died of two years before. Mm. Grandfather died at age 39. So one would think this would be a bit uh, scary and a bit uh, concerning. And of course, certain emotions uh, did arise. Yeah. But, the, you know, I got this news right after going on a retreat. And so it was in a really good place anyway to simply mm -hmm. receive. And my experience was, I think, very different from some others who had not had the benefit right. of years of practice. Yes. And there was a, there's a, a, a journal that at the, at the time, I don't know if they still do this. Uh, this is at uh, the, uh, Hubert Humphrey Cancer Center in Minnesota. In the waiting room, they have a little journal for people to write whatever they want. Yeah. And, and looking at, at this journal was, it was filled with what one would expect, with uh, pain and fear and rage and all the rest about this uh, this incredibly trying experience that people were having, which was which wasn't really uh, my experience mm -hmm. because the perspective was maybe a little bit different for me thanks to the practice. Yeah. So, you know, if someone that's getting into meditation, or, you know, for perhaps our younger audience, you know, what words of advice, you know, if they're, they're joining in now and, you know, they're perhaps interested in, in, in getting into meditation mindfulness, you know, what advice would you give you know, to help someone, you know, spur them on their way? I'd say one suggestion that I, I give people in any kind of endeavor is do a little bit of research first, you know, find out what this is like, uh, find out what it is that you're interested in about it. I mean, why do you want to do this? Um, for me, it was, I have problems with attention. And once I started, it was, Oh, and I need to shift who I am because <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not so good. Yeah. So do some reading. Uh, there are lots of materials that are available, uh, some very good books, some new ones have, have just come out that are uh, good programs for uh, younger adults and, and kids, K through 12, different ages. And those different ages have different needs. Yeah. So it's, you know, a, a full MBSR program with those commitments would probably not be appropriate for an eight-year-old. So there are, there are different programs that uh, mindful schools does a great job. The Dot B program, yeah. Dot B program yeah. is another wonderful one. Um, the uh, uh, Goldie Hans Hahn Foundation and their Mind Up program is another. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just did a, an interview for those who are more interested in a, a traditional setting. Um, Sumi Kim's books that are recent on uh, family-based mindfulness practice are also beautifully done she did a terrific job on those so there do some checking first yeah. and see what appeals to you and then uh 
finding a teacher that you trust, mm -hmm. which there's an open dialogue and not a, well, sure, I'll teach you. Here's this year-long contract at a huge <laughs> price. That might be a red flag. <laughs> Top two guests you would love to have on your show. Top two guests I'd like to have on the show. There are, of course, there are lots of guests I would like to have. Uh, fortunately, the first one has already agreed. It's just a matter of getting him nailed down. And uh, and as you know, I've run into this yourself, is John Kabat-Zinn. Mm -hmm. um, he, he really enjoyed the, the conversation, one of the conversations I'd had with Becca Crane, uh, on a paper she and John and Willem Kaken and others wrote, and Willem came on uh, after that. So John would be one. Uh, and another, I would like to talk to uh, Daniel Goleman about his work. I know you've had him on the podcast. Mm -hmm. His son Hanuman has been uh, on my podcasts. Mm -hmm. And then if we're really breaking the ceiling wide open. Let's push, yeah, I, go ahead. I, I would say that the Dalai Lama might be a nice guest mm -hmm. just to see and in, in particular talk with him about some, um, I think, positive things he has said about uh, it's not really about the Buddhism. It's about how we are in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the most important thing. So yeah. those would be my dream top three. As, yeah, we the Action for Happiness actually hosted a you know, a day when the Dalai Lama came down and spoke about two, three years ago. So I was, just, so I was part of the interviewing team that day. So I actually got Macha Rickard, Daniel Goleman, Richard Davidson, all in one day. It just, it was only one, literally one or two questions per. Yeah. But the Dalai Lama was wandering around and that was really the one that, but yeah, the security was really tight. <laughs> the security was really tight, but it was just, you know, just to see him there and hear him talk you know, face the live and face to face. That was pretty awesome. So last question, Ted, um, in the action for happiness fashion, what matters most to you? So on a, on a personal level, of course, my, my family, including my four footed family, <laughs> Uh, and then on a, on a wider scale, just an ongoing, um, an ongoing connection that I think is best supported by practicing deep listening, which can be very difficult. And it's, it's one of my teaching edges is the listening. Mm -hmm. Uh, and just seeing how how that really changes things, how that really shifts things, because we today, in particular, in our society, uh, there's there's a little bit too much of the of this fist shaking, a little bit less of the open welcoming. Mm -hmm. So, just that. Wonderful. All right. So, the website where people can find out about your not only your podcast but you. Online courses as well, right? Or are they, are they face to face? Yeah. So, presentmomentmindfulness.com dot com mm -hmm. is the website, and on that, I'm as of this recording uh, taking applications for the spring twenty eighteen program, which is a live online. There are right now very few places 
where you can find MBSR live online. Uh, even fewer, this may be the only one at this time that's on a donation basis. Mm -hmm. um, so I do encourage people who have considered taking the course and have wanted to um, please visit because that it's um, it's really been an amazing experience in in teaching and uh, in welcoming people to this new practice or even those who are very experienced who've taken it are like yeah this is this is different it's not what I was expecting yeah. and being able to establish the kinds of connections one does in person through a screen um, you know Brady Bunch style and mm -hmm. still that that tends to to vanish after the first session. And this is one fairly consistent comment is people are always very surprised. You know, I, I thought this would be a little weird. And, and really after the first class, it wasn't. And it was just wonderful seeing everyone every week. So presentmomentmindfulness.com. And remember, if you'd like to help create a kinder and happier world, please get involved with Action for Happiness. You can join thousands of others who are spreading a bit more happiness in their homes workplaces, schools and local communities. Don't forget to subscribe, like and follow to keep up to date with all our content. Find out more at actionforhappiness.org. Join the movement, be the change.